Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Dr. Mary Pardee. Dr. Mary is a good friend. She is a certified naturopathic doctor and functional medicine practitioner. She's really a specialist uh, in gut health and in hormones but has a profound wealth of knowledge in a variety of things as it relates to optimal wellness and well-being. And so we go deep on the show into, into hormones, into gut health, into brain health, into heart health, into testing and various types of tests that one can do to assess their well-being, as well as various protocols that one can take on to optimize their health and wellness. So I think you'll get a tremendous amount of value from this episode. I uh, listened to it and will re-listen to it. It's chuck full of information. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review over on Apple uh, Podcasts. We have now over 300 uh, five-star reviews. I'm so grateful for them. Thank you so much. It helps us to get world-class guests and to boost the show up in the ratings. And my vision is to get better and better guests for you guys to continue to add value to you week in, week out. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Dr. Mary Pardee. All right. I am here with my friend, Dr. Mary Pardee. Dr. Mary, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So I was thinking through, you're such a treasure trove of information and for the benefits of the listeners. I thought it'd be really um, helpful because I think a lot of folks here are, are very much tuned in and we've had some incredible, you know, functional medicine doctors on the show, mm-hmm. but I think uh, you bring a really a powerful kind of, um, you, a, a powerful grouping of knowledges. I mean, you focus uh, a lot on gut health, on hormones. I've, I've asked you some, some questions as it relates to, to brain health and, and gut health and heart health. So I thought we'd kind of go through, for those listening, if you were really, you know, perhaps you have a symptom coming up or maybe you just want to, you know, really optimize your health and, you know, you want to go see a natural, a naturopathic doctor, what, what the process might look like in terms of like how you would assess uh, their health um, and maybe just, you know, I have to go deep into the philosophy, but how that differs from say how you go to a traditional doctor visit. Well, one, it's generally probably going to be longer than four minutes, uh, but, uh, but just generally like what that process looks like. And then I have a, a multitude of questions we can go into after, but, but, but in essence, for those listening, if I were to come to you, what does that uh, initial process look like? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is one of the most common questions that we get, especially for people that haven't seen a naturopathic or a functional medicine doctor before. And the real difference is how we approach and our philosophy behind healthcare. So we're definitely in the preventative medicine space. So I always tell people I'm in the industry of healthcare, not sick care. And so I'm all about prevention and optimization um, versus waiting till a disease process is in state and then treating it at that point. So it's very common for people to have come to see me and they've got an elevated blood sugar level, but their doctor says, hey, nothing to worry about. You're not pre-diabetic or you're not diabetic yet. And when you come to see us, we're saying, great, you're not yet, but we still have a lot of work to do because your insulin is elevated, which is the first step in the process of developing prediabetes and diabetes. So we're all about prevention, and then we're all about treating the root cause. So instead of having an elevated blood sugar and just putting you on a medication that lowers your blood sugar, we're also looking at what is your diet, what's your exercise, lifestyle, stress, um, hormones, all the things that we know affect blood sugar Um, and can really prevent the disease process or totally resolve it. So type 2 diabetes and prediabetes are reversible, and that should be really empowering to the patient. Um, So what it looks like when you come to see us is it's about 45 minutes to an hour and a half intake. So we're diving into your past medical history. We're talking about your family history. We're actually asking you what you ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What have you done for a workout this week? Do you strength train? Are you just doing aerobic activity? 
Um, we're talking about your birth history. Were you breastfed? Were you formula fed? Were you C-section born? Were you vaginally delivered? All these things that we know influence your gut microbiome and gut health, which is one of my specialties, but also just your overall health. So people will come to, to me with no health issues at all. And they'll say, I just want to make sure I'm healthy and that I'm the healthiest I can be. And if there's anything we've got to work on, then I want to work on it. And those people I'm talking about, how many push-ups can you do? How fast can you run a mile? Um, how many pull-ups can you do? You know, how is how much joy do you have in your life? All the things that we know are very influential on our longevity and health span, which is a huge passion of mine, just optimizing wellness. Um, and then we're also treating a little bit differently. So I'm always using the most natural means possible. So if I can have the same changes with an herb, vitamin or mineral that I would have with a pharmaceutical, then I'm going to use the natural approach first. Um, so we have a different therapeutic order, making sure that if we can change everything with diet and no supplement at all, even better. Um, and then going to the natural supplements, herbs, vitamins, and minerals, and then using pharmaceuticals if still needed. Love that. So you brought up quite a bit there and a couple things that came up for me. So one is I know, you know, so some of these things are, you know, readily, readily controllable. Like for example, the choice and sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hundred percent. Yes. I'm doubling down. So for example, in general, I like to avoid pharmaceutical drugs if possible. Mm -hmm. However, if I get bit by a tick and feel like I'm about to get Lyme disease, give me that doxycycline. Mm -hmm. Um, that said, and this touches on what you had mentioned previously, there are certain things one can't control. So for example, I'll just speak personally because because uh, I think it may help ground it for the audience, but I was um, uh, a C-section, so I was not vaginally born, so I didn't get that, that initial building block from my microbiome. And my mother also had a hard time breastfeeding. So I know that those are some of the core tenants to establishing that beautiful ecosystem uh, within our gut flora. Um, and, and I know that also, like many people, because of the overprescription of antibiotics in conventional medicine, that I've had quite a barrage of antibiotics in my youth. One of your specialties I know is gut health. And so from a deep place of personal curiosity, but I imagine I'm not alone in those listening, how does one think about assessing where their gut health is now in terms of the diversity of their gut? Because for example, you know, I've heard Yes, probiotics and such are great, but if you have an imbalanced ecosystem in the first place, it's like putting fertilizer on your imbalance. So you may be just actually exacerbating the issue. So how does one think about um, the gut in terms of if, if you're op operating in a, perhaps a sub, with suboptimal building blocks, how does one assess where they're at? And then how do you go about the process of rebuilding if you do have, say, gut permeability, a leaky gut, or, or a, just not a lack of diversity in your, in your gut flora? Absolutely. And this is, this is a big topic. We could talk about this alone for an hour, but a brief overview. So how do you assess your gut health? First thing is, is how do you feel? So are you constipated? Are you having one bowel movement every single day? Does it feel like you fully void? There's also something called the Bristol stool chart, which is one of my favorites. All my patients know it. It's pictures of poop. Um, ideally, you want your poop to be like a soft, long log that is the length from your wrist to your elbow. So it's actually a pretty decent amount. So if you're having little tiny rabbit pellets, then that's not the optimal poop. Um, and these are on average. It's okay to have rabbit pellets once in a blue moon, right? But on average, you should have these well-formed stools that are brown in color depending on the food that you eat your poop can change in color, but no excessive gas, bloating, diarrhea, loose stools, feelings of indigestion, like things just sit in your stomach after every meal, um, reflux, food coming back up. So the absence of GI symptoms is one of the best indicators of gut health. So that's the first place to start. Um, you can also have manifestations of gut health that are not gut health related, like eczema or atopic conditions or brain fog can sometimes result from an imbalance of gut bacteria, but you're typically showing signs of some sort of gut imbalance if your gut is the issue. And so that's the first thing is just, you know, how are you pooping? Are you pooping every day? Is it well formed? Does it feel good? Is it fully voiding or are you on one side of the spectrum or another? Um, how to rebuild your gut and talking about diversity, say if you were a C-section or you weren't breastfed. First of all, we know that there's plenty of people that weren't 
vaginally delivered and weren't breastfed that go on to lead extraordinary healthy lives. So it's not a sentence by any means. It increases your risk of certain things, but it never means that you'll, you're destined to get those. So that's number one is just have faith in your body's ability to pivot and to take on things. Diversity is all about your food choices more than anything. So diversity stems from a variety of vegetables that you're including in your diet. So even when people eat, say they eat for every single meal, they have chicken, broccoli, asparagus, arugula, and sweet potato. Like that's every meal is just super clean, right? But they have that every single meal. So there's no diversity. They're, they're relying on like three vegetables per week, the same protein. Your gut microbiome thrives on diversity more than anything else. That and the amount of fiber that you consume. So making sure you're eating seasonally will help induce it automatically. If you're eating seasonally, your things are going to change. Going to the farmer's market, picking out a new vegetable every day, ensuring that you're consuming six to nine cups of vegetables per day. So the average American consumes about 15 grams of fiber per day. The RDA, like the, what the government is saying that we should consume, is 25 to 30 grams. Our ancestral tribal cultures, like the Hazda tribe that's still in existence, hunter-gatherer tribal cultures, consuming 150 grams of fiber per day, 10 times the amount that the average American is consuming. So when you're talking about gut health, it's just eat more plants. Like if we just did that, we would solve a lot of our issues. Stress has a huge role in it. It's going to slow down motility or speed it up depending on kind of your constitution. It can also cause bloating. Intestinal permeability, I believe, is really rooted in stress more so than anything, as well as just the standard American diet, which can create inflammation in the gut and predispose you to food sensitivities. Um, so rebuilding the gut, start with nutrition, do a 30 day elimination diet, take out like all of the inflammatory foods, the processed foods for gut health, actually taking out nuts, which people are, um, they don't know, they can be really exacerbating for certain gut conditions. Yeah, peanuts were my favorite. And then I realized I actually, I'm totally, uh, peanuts are not good for me. Yeah. How do you feel? How do you feel about lectins by the way, or, or nightshades? Yeah. What's so, um, I'm, I'm not for the anti-lectin or the, the lectin diet. I don't think there's enough science behind it. I've seen people do better with rheumatoid arthritis, joint conditions, or an autoimmune condition with a low nightshade, but it's really specific to your condition. And if you take them out for 30 to 60 days and you don't get better and you put them back in and you don't get worse, then keep them in your diet for diversity. So don't just take them out because Tom Brady takes them out. Like take them out because they make you feel better when you take them out and they make you feel worse when you put them back in. So you have to be scientific about it, which is really what I'm rooted in. Yeah. So one of the folks I, one of my early interviews, uh, I was actually at the functional medicine at the, at the forum and, and talked to Dr. Terry Walls, who, um, for those listening had cured herself, um, somewhat, somewhat controversially in, in conventional medicine circles, but she can, she definitely cured herself of progressive MS using mm -hmm. diet and lifestyle. And one of the tenets of her diet, which I thought was really fascinating for those listening, many of you may know my father, um, had struggled with dementia. And so I was very interested in the brain and the gut brain connection. And she, uh, you know, her diet, which you can delve into that episode deeply, we don't need to go too deep here, but she had talked a lot about the diversity of vegetables. And the way that she for sort of the layman described it was actually trying to eat as much of the rainbow as possible in your vegetable choices. Um, because obviously, when you're talking about 30 days and elimination, sometimes people get like transfixed on like, okay, well, what can I eat? What can't I eat this and that? So it sounds like in, in general, as a, as a general rule, you want it to you want to eat, be eating more vegetables. But is there a sense of like diversity of color is actually beneficial? Are there certain kinds of vegetables or certain kinds of foods that are that, that are, for lack of a better term, the superfoods we want to be consuming? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the eat, eat the rainbow is, is such a great term. People think it's very juvenile, but it actually has a lot of science rooted in it. Um, so different color vegetables are different colors because they have different polyphenols, antioxidants in them. So they have carotenoids if they're orange, right? Um, anthrocyanidins make things like dark purpley blue colors. So we have different colors because of the constituents in them. And what's interesting is that it's not just a reflection of the constituents, but it's also a reflection of how your microbiome will respond to it. So your microbiome feeds off of a couple of things. When I say microbiome, I actually mean microbiota which are the actual bugs 
in the intestines. So you have about 100 trillion microorganisms um, in the human ecosystem or the intestinal tract, 100 trillion, like a large amount. If you look at this compared to human cells, um, we're a fraction human. Um, and if you look at it in terms of DNA, we're actually 99% microbial DNA and 1% human DNA. So this is like a big conversation, but these little bacteria consume fiber, which we already talked about. They also consume polyphenols. So they actually eat the antioxidants, which means that if you just have something that's dense in fiber, but it doesn't have a ton of antioxidants in it, you're not gonna get the same benefit from your microbiome standpoint. Um, so eating the diversity of the rainbow, yeah, it's a cute like kid thing and kids love it as well, but it also has a lot of science saying you can have a wide range of diversity of polyphenols as well as different food groups if you really make sure that you're not just eating green foods, you're not just eating orange foods, or you're not just eating blueberries, but you're eating all of the things and rotating them in your diet. I love that. What about from the point of view of supplementation, right? So like omega-3s I know were, were something that I, I, you know, I, I did a variety of different tests. So I did a test um, when I was doing this, actually, I met them through this uh, functional forum, but I did a test for my gut, my heart, and my brain. Um, traditionally, those would need to be prescribed by a physician, but I had talked uh, directly with the, with the lab and, and fortunately got those tests done. And it was fascinating to get such, such a more comprehensive picture. I mean, obviously, this is your day-to-day, -day, but I think for many people listening you know, who go to a traditional physician our experience and exposure to labs is, is minute compared to the diversity of information that mm -hmm. is available. And so uh, certain things were presented to me as I went through this sort of hour long, two hour long, you know, download of these various aspects of myself that I'd never known about until these tests. And, and this notion of like personalizing and, and eating and supplementing and exercising actually commensurate with your your type right your genetics your you know you, you know your the different environmental you know aspects that you grew up with um you know for example i was concerned with my dad uh of around apoe4 alleles because you know if you have two of those uh you, they say upwards of nine times more likely of getting alzheimer's thankfully didn't have two apoe4 alleles but um but also, I learned uh, that even if you did, for example, have those genetic markers, uh, and forgive the analogy, I was told it's something like you could have a loaded gun, but it doesn't mean you have to pull the trigger. So it, through epigenetics, through diet and lifestyle, you could actually, even with, for lack of a better analogy, the chips stacked up against you, you could still win, win your hand, so to speak. Um, so how do, for those listening... I mean, I'm sure that the answer for personalization is labs, but say you have gone ahead and got labs, you've consulted with a, a naturopathic or functional medicine doctor. How does one start to think about personalized healthcare? So utilize, like how often should one be doing these kinds of tests? For example, I did mine two years ago and I, I, I think they're fabulous. They're generally not that inexpensive, mm -hmm. but you know, should this is something one should be doing every year? How can one also most effectively utilize that information from a layman's point of view? So in essence, a big broad question, but how does one start to personalize using some of the tools that are available today uh, also wearables. And I know you've, you've talked about that on other podcasts as I was doing my research. We have all this ability to get heart rate variability, to assess what's working for us, for lack of a better term, and what's not working for us in whole new ways. So how do you, how do you recommend the average consumer work with that new information such that they can optimize it for their personal well-being? Yeah. And I think it's, it starts with lab work. It starts with, you know, talking to a professional naturopathic or functional medicine doctor. Um, because what I see people make the mistake of is they try to do everything by themselves. And I'm a big outsourcer. So I outsource everything that I'm not an expert in because it saves me time. And it's the same exact thing when it comes to your healthcare. Like why try to hack it? Why try to doctor Google it when you can meet with somebody who's studied this stuff for 10, 20, you know, 30 years. Um, so you get way more bang for your buck if you have a third party on board that really knows this stuff and can and can also talk to you from an objective standpoint and not like an internal bias that you might have with your own health. So I see people all the time that think that they're so sick. And I really look at their labs and I'm like, 
listen, you're actually in great health. Let's do these couple tweaks, but you know, we have to shift the mindset around health as well. So having a third party that's more objective, I think is the first place. Lab work is key. So our lab work, um, we can put through a PPO insurance plan. Um, so you don't have to pay out of pocket for all of these tests. If you want the most comprehensive panel, you know, we're looking at like $650 out of pocket with the company that we use. It's not that crazy. Sure, you, you can keep adding. You could do every functional medicine test as well, and then it's going to keep on adding. Um, but you're looking at anywhere from 200 to 650 if you don't have a good PPO insurance plan to go through. So you can get a ton of information for not a lot of money. And um, that's where you want to start is you want to see what is your blood telling you? What are your levels? You brought up omega-3s. 98% of Americans are deficient in omega-3 fats. These are the fats that embed our cell membrane, make sure that it's nice and fluid so that we can have communication with our neurons, pass messages back and forth in the brain, and also make sure that we have more of an anti-inflammatory expression versus a pro-inflammatory expression. We don't consume enough omega fats. It shows it in the blood. And then there's a ton of at-home testing companies now. So say you don't want to work with a functional or naturopathic doctor, there's an omega test that they'll send you and you can prick your finger and you can send it back and just get your omega-3 level. Um, I'm a fan of, okay, that's just one pinpoint. If that's all you can afford now, great, start there. Just get that one number. But if you can do a full panel, you're going to get a better picture. It's like a bird's eye view versus really focusing in on one thing. Um, so looking at your different nutrient statuses, there, about 70% of people are, are suboptimal for vitamin D, 45% are just frank deficient in vitamin D. You know, these are things that your doctor, even your primary care doctor can run a vitamin D level on you, a magnesium, a zinc. These can all be done by conventional um, testing companies like Quest or LabCorp as well. If you really want the deep dive, the genetics, the APOE4, the MTHFR, then you're going to want to work with somebody who's done this and actually can interpret them and tell you what to do, what actionables to take based on your results, which is important. Um, Let's touch on that real briefly, if, if you don't mind, in terms of before you continue on, if you do have an APOE4 allele, because I have talked to several friends and they're very confused by it, mm -hmm. what, what things should one be mindful of and or what kind of lifestyle alterations should be made if you're carrying that gene? Yeah, and this is like, you could deep dive into this. The, the basics of the APOE4, first of all, if you have one allele versus two, it's a different risk, risk factor. Um, they're just risk factors though. They're not determinants. So like you said, loading the gun versus pulling the trigger. And so you want to first shift your diet in terms of nutrition. Six to nine cups of vegetables per day is like minimum because you really want to make sure your antioxidant status is very high. You have enough polyphenols coming in to reduce any of the free radical damage that you can have. The second thing is you're probably not going to benefit from a ketogenic diet or a diet higher in saturated fat. APOE4 allele positive people do better on a lower saturated fat diet. Could you do a ketogenic diet? You could, but you'd wanna really make sure that you're doing mostly unsaturated fatty acids, like olive oil as your main fat source. So, and staying away from like the coconut and the animal-based fats with that APOE4. If you're APOE2-2, you don't have to worry as much about that and you might actually be okay on a ketogenic diet. So you can start to personalize your diet and which macronutrients you're focusing on more if you are that APOE4. Um, positive allele. Um, the other ones with APOE4 is exercise and stress reduction are going to be much more important to you than they would be to somebody else that's not APOE4. I think that they're important to everybody, so it's just like prioritize it as your number one no matter what. Um, and then there's different things you can do in terms of different mushrooms that you could incorporate into your diet like chaga or lion's mane that can be beneficial. Um, and then also really prioritizing sulforaphane rich vegetables and sulforaphane in general. Um, your brassica vegetables should be high on your list. Things like broccoli, um, cauliflower, your cruciferous vegetables. If you can increase those, those are really beneficial for that allele type. Um, there's a lot of other things. Something that's interesting about APOE4 that people don't know is it's actually a protective mechanism. And so this is a lot of the time when we see genetic SNPs or polymorphisms that are detrimental to our health now, 
they originated because they benefited our health at some point. So with ApoE4 specifically, it protected us from parasites. So our ancestors were more likely to survive because they didn't get a parasite infection. Same with LP little a. So LP little a is another marker for advanced cardiovascular disease marker. And it's one that I love to run on my patients. But LP little a is around because it helped your blood clot. And when we were fighting and had more wars and bleeding out was a serious risk to health, people with the LP little a that was higher actually clotted faster for survivability. And now it's a detriment because clotting doesn't really help us if we're not like bleeding out all the time. Um, but it's interesting because they're usually evolutionarily around for a reason. Wow. That's fascinating. I want to go deeper into the genetics. Um, but let's, for, for the benefit of those listening, let's, uh, let's tap on, I, I wanted to sort of go through as a general overview um, for structure. Um, we've talked a little bit about the gut. I'd love to go and cover over anything. I mean, obviously we could do a whole podcast on the gut, but I'd love to cover over on any other recommendations you have for optimal sort of gut health as a broad, broad stroke. Um, the heart and then the brain in terms of just as you look through those aspects of, of our systems, um, how should one be thinking about them? Obviously, they all work together. Uh, part of the, I think, the great fallacy of Western, the Western tradition is, you know, at least in my experience, a lot of times when I was young, I would go into the doctor and, you know, it would be very much like, how is this organ doing, right? As, as if it were removed from the rest mm -hmm. of my body. Um, but how do you think about using that structure? Maybe you could just sort of take us through a journey uh, from, from the gut to the brain. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about the gut um, and it, it's such a big topic. So I actually have a gut health course and it's four to five hours of content and it's still scratching the surface. So it just talks about the major conditions and it doesn't talk about everything. Um, but just to give you an idea, like we could go so many different directions with this. Um, gut health from, you know, a perspective of what should you know, really think Fiber diversity. The one that we haven't talked about yet, though, that I'll touch on is mindful eating and mindfulness. And this is this can be one of the biggest game changers for your gut health. So people often are in their cars eating out of a Tupperware on their way to work or just commuting. They're having these meals that are on the go or they're by their laptop now that they're working from home and they're eating while they're working so that then they can take a lunch break and do something else, right? And so if your body is in the state of sympathetic drive, fight or flight, it is not ready to consume food. So if you're not salivating, like if you don't have a lot of saliva in your mouth, you're not ready to eat. So you should be actively salivating. And the importance of that is the cephalic phase of digestion. So digestion actually starts before the food hits your mouth. 30% of your stomach acid and enzymes are released in the cephalic phase. This means the sight, the smell, um, the preparation of food is actually the start of digestion. So you want to make sure that you're interacting with your food, you're smelling it. That's why cooking is so great because it delays the process. Eating fast food, eating takeout takes out a big portion of that cephalic phase of digestion. So if you are salivating, if you're ready to eat, you want to sit down, you want to take a few breaths, start to induce that vagus nerve, the parasympathetic nervous system. The vagus nerve innovates everything from the mouth all the way down to the lower part of the colon. So it helps with the digestive process, motility, making sure things are moving through. When you take your first bite, you want to make sure you're chewing it to the point where it's baby food, baby food or like pureed material. If it's not pureed, you shouldn't swallow. The only mechanical digestion ever that happens in the body is just the chewing process. After you swallow, it's all chemical digestion from there on out. That means if you have a piece of steak and you make it into just like smaller pieces of steak, your, your stomach now has to deal with a chunk of steak and chemically digest that going to take a lot of time. So really making sure that you're utilizing your mechanical digestion to, to your benefit is going to help. When people say my food sits in my stomach, it's like, okay, you took two bites and you swallowed it. Of course it's going to sit there. It's going to take your stomach forever now to figure out the digestive process here on out. Um, and so chewing your food and then making sure that you're not drinking a ton of liquids with your food as well. It's going to dilute your stomach acid and your stomach enzymes. So food should be consumed in a meal. Liquids should be consumed outside of the meal between meals. And this can really make a big game changer with digestive health alone. 
Um, and then with mindful eating, it's like turn off the TV, close the laptop, sit, enjoy your food. A meal should take like 30 minutes to an hour. Talking to people is actually really beneficial because of that social connection. It slows you down, um, number one, but it also releases endorphins and your like happiness hormones, which can be really beneficial for the digest digestive process. You don't want to be stressed when you're eating. If you're stressed or you're sick, those are two times where you actually might want to forego eating for a little bit. So people think you have to feed a fever and things like that. You should listen to your body. If you're not hungry, it's okay to forego eating if it's under a certain period of time. If you're doing this every day, of course not. Like that, <laughs> that's not safe. But listen to your body. Really get in tune. And when you're ready to eat, sit down, have a meal, make it, make it a thing. That's my thing. Love it. Okay. So that covers over on the gut. Yep. Now, what about the heart? Um, I'd love to, I'd love to talk a little bit about cardiac health. Obviously it's an acute issue. I mean, uh, there's now more obese people on the planet than non-obese people. Mm -hmm. Um, we have, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're recording now, uh, during a time of COVID and, you know, cofactors are a huge implication in mortality. And I feel yeah. like the heart, heart health is something that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a silent killer, but like, how, how does one go about keeping their heart in, in great condition? I, I mean, I know cardio is one, is one, one aspect, but you know, for, for the layman, how does one think about the heart and heart health? Yeah. And so with my anti-aging and preventative clients, I'm asking them how fast can you run a mile? We got to be sub nine, sub eight. So, and people think like that's a really high standard that should be our standard. Our standards should be high. They should not be low. Um, so <laughs> cardiovascular health, you know, how fast can you run a mile? Can you run a mile? If you can't, can you walk a mile? Like start wherever you are. So if it's like, oh, I can't run a mile. I can't see Dr. Mary. No, we just want to see like, what's your baseline and how can we move you up um, to something that's better? Um, lab work is kind of my jam. So I'm looking at advanced cardiac markers. So your cholesterol is basically all that your primary care conventional doctor will do, which is your LDLC. So your LDL concentration, and then they'll also run your HDL concentration, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, triglycerides, um, or what they're looking at. That doesn't tell you your true risk, right? So you can have somebody with a low LDL However, they have a high risk for cardiovascular disease if you dig into the advanced testing options. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. So if we're talking longevity, we have to be talking cardiovascular. We can't miss out on this. And it is the silent killer. You don't have a symptom of high cholesterol necessarily. It's not like, oh, I'm itchy. I must have high cholesterol. Um, so you want to dive into this, especially with a family history of cardiovascular disease. So you need to see somebody who knows how to interpret these, but what you want to get done is an LDL particle number or an ApoB, which they correlate. They're almost, you know, identical. Um, so you want to get those done because those are looking the number of particles of cholesterol. So you have these lipoproteins that actually hold your cholesterol. Cholesterol is housed within the lipoprotein. So when you're running your LDLC, you're actually running how much concentration, like how much does that cholesterol weigh versus how many particles are floating around in your blood. Particle number is much more indicative of cardiovascular disease risk than cholesterol concentrations. And so we're always running an LDL particle number on people to see where they're at and make sure that they're in the preventative range. And if not, there's things that we can do. If we ran an APOE on you, we're going to decide is a low carb, higher fat diet going to help reduce that number? Or do we have to reduce saturated fats in your diet? Would that be more indicative of, you know, heart health for you? So it's individualized. There's not one answer. There's also herbs that you can do to lower that number. And it's going to be a bigger indicator of what does statin be actually helpful for you? So I'm not anti-statins for everybody. I think that they're over-prescribed for sure. And you want to know why you're taking them and if it's helping. And if you can do the natural way first and see if that's helpful, then that's always my, my go-to there. The other thing we're running is LP little a, which is more of a genetic um, indicator of heart health and coagulability. So we're looking for that to be at a certain number, like at less than 50 for most people. Um, and those are going to be the big ones. And then cardiometabolic, like, they intertwine. So you want to look at your fasting insulin level. 
That's never run by a conventional doctor. It is widely available at Quest and your insurance, if you have a good plan, should cover it. This is the number that's gonna elevate before your fasting blood sugar will elevate and before your HbA1c, which is your average blood sugar over the last three months. So you'll get an elevated insulin, a fasting insulin, before either the other two are elevated. So I tell people it's like a pre-pre-pre-diabetes marker. It's like before you ever have to worry about anything. I want people's insulin at a five. I want it at a five. I don't want it at a one and I don't want it at an eight or a nine. So I'm super picky about insulin because I really think it's a, it's a powerful, powerful hormone. Um, insulin's not bad. We need insulin to get sugars into the cells to fuel the cells so that we can produce ATP and energy. That's why you don't want insulin at a one either. Um, so really looking at more of an advanced profile and I actually have a link um, through the Broken Brain podcast and everything that has a full list of all of these labs because they're, I think it's like a two hour interview that we did over there. Excellent. Yeah, I'll, I'll happily uh, link that up uh, in the show notes. So, okay, so we've touched on the heart, we've touched on uh, the gut. One of the corollaries, so you mentioned statins and cholesterol. Obviously, cholesterol has been largely vilified. Um, and I know from my experience with my dad, that oftentimes, obviously, the brain needs that cholesterol and those fats to survive and thrive. So, um, you know, not in any way, uh, you know, saying no one should take statins, but uh, as a dementia sufferer, he was on statins for a very long time, which mm -hmm. some would argue, actually, in many ways, kind of starved his brain of some of the necessary nutrients that he needed. He did previously have some heart challenges. So it, it's a tricky, it's a tricky dance. But for, for those listening, how do you think about brain health? Um, how do you think about uh, many of us are going to live longer than many of the previous generations? Uh, we are hopefully going to do that in a good way. Um, dementia is unfortunately becoming more and more common, uh, as is diabetes, which you mentioned uh, previously, some call dementia type 3 diabetes. What, what's your sense of sort of metabolic health? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a broader question, but how do, you, how do you think about the brain and how do you think about um, optimizing our, our brain health long-term, basically keeping ourselves in the game so that we can, we can think clearly and crisp, crisply and um, that make, we're making sure that we're, we're fueling the brain well? Yeah. And there was one that we didn't talk about with cardio health that actually overlaps with brain health too. And we touched on it before is that omega-3 index. So that's one that you definitely want to run. Um, the, the research behind the omega-3 index is actually very strong. So it's one that I'm confused why conventional docs and why insurance doesn't usually cover that one. But most Americans are less than 4% omega-3 status. We're looking at 8 to 12% for optimal ranges. And there's research that shows if you're in that 8 to 12, that higher percentage, it's about a 90% lower risk for sudden cardiac death. Hmm. And yet it's not standard of care. It's like mind blowing. Um, it's a simple test. You can do it through Quest or LabCorp. And it's, you know, it's, it's super powerful to know. Um, your statins, if we want to compare it to a statin, it, it, statins lower risk sometimes by 30% if the statin's beneficial. So just to compare that, an omega-3 status lowering the risk 90% for sudden cardiac death versus 30% from one of the most widely prescribed medications in America. Um, yeah, so looking into that, I think, is really important. And then that has to do with brain health, too, because your brain is mostly fat, and you want to make sure you've got good omega-3s there for good transduction of messages throughout the brain. So it's a good one for, for brain health, for sure. ADHD does great with high-dose DHA or EPA supplementation, but especially DHA is great for post-concussion as well as ADHD, which are both brain-based conditions. Um, and we were moving into, okay, so for brain health as well, you've got to do the insulin, like it, it all plays in there because like you said, the type three, um, diabetes going into dementia. The other things that we're doing for brain health, which aren't as common is we're doing functional brain scans. So fMRIs are, are amazing. They're extremely expensive and they're unattainable for the general public mostly, um, but you can do an fMRI, which is looking at your brain doing an actual function. So it's actually in the process of doing something that you're seeing how it is acting and how it's functioning. Um, 
However, there's one step down that's very attainable to a lot of people, and it's a volumetrics brain scan, which is what we do more so in our practice. This is kind of like your brain baseline. It's like how big are different areas of your brain so that we can follow up and redo this brain scan in one or two years. And then we can see, are you getting areas of the brain that are shrinking, which is what happens in aging or dementia. We have shrinking of different areas of the brain. Um, and so we can catch it when it's very subtle versus when you're actually having symptoms, which is when you don't really want to catch it. You want to catch it before the symptoms start. So those volumetric brain scans are looking at like 45 different brain regions and can start to tell you for your age and your gender, are you normal or are you suboptimal? And what are some exercises we can start to do to strengthen those areas? So if you have issues with, let's just say your temporal lobe, which is memory area of the brain. It's also the area that listens to music. So could we change your routine so you're listening to more music? Music is brain health. People don't realize that, but music is amazing for the brain. Different tones, different types of music, dancing is all going to activate the brain in different areas of the brain. The key with brain health is do what you're terrible at. If you're terrible at math, that's going to be the first area of your brain that goes because you don't have a lot of connections there. So if you're bad at math, you, you better be doing Sudoku and, you know, all of the brain, uh, math games that you can. If you're bad at writing with your left hand, writing with your left hand can help develop that side of your brain. If you go when you're surfing, if you have your right foot forward, I'll tell people, put your left foot forward. That's going to strengthen the areas of your brain that are more deficient. So doing what you're bad at is a really simple way to optimize your brain health. And, and it's usually free. Like all of these things you can do. If you play basketball and you love it and you do a layup with your right hand, start doing layups with your left hand. Like it's, you can do any of these things and really boost your brain health. The other thing with brain health is that retirement is a very bad idea. So if you go into retirement and you stop doing a lot of things, your brain's going to degenerate. If you don't use it, you lose it. And so you want to make sure you're staying active. If you go into retirement and you start to be on the board of fundraisers and you're still being active and you're still using all the areas in your brain, then wonderful. But you want to make sure you're active and you're engaged and you're always learning. So I'm coming from like a growth-based mindset where we should always be learning. And if we're not learning, then we're regressing. So making sure that you're learning a new language amazing for brain health, or you're learning a new song on your guitar, you're learning how to play a new instrument in the first place. All of these things are really going to start to stimulate your brain. Your brain's also an organ, so you want to make sure your micronutrient status is there. You want to make sure you're eating clean. You're not spiking your blood sugar. So we do continuous glucose monitoring with some of our clients where you're hooking on a device onto your abdomen or your body. It's actually telling you what your blood sugar is throughout the day. And are you spiking with certain foods? There's a difference in your microbiome that can either determine whether the gut microbes react to certain foods and cause a spike in blood sugar levels or not, even with normal foods like blueberries or sweet potatoes. Some people will react to specific things despite having a low glycemic index, which a low glycemic food should technically not spike your blood sugar, but these are individual variations in the gut microbiome that can cause these alterations. So I love putting people on continuous glucose monitors. So you can learn about your body. I did one myself and um, caffeine spikes my blood sugar, even like a bullet, you know, like a high fat coffee with no sugar in it at all spikes my blood sugar more than anything. Oats, another low glycemic food, like super spiked my blood sugar. So figuring out your body, I think is a really cool thing to do. I love that. A couple things real quickly. So on the music side, if you guys haven't watched the film Alive Inside, it's so, so powerful. One Sundance several years back, but it shows exactly that, the power of music um, in activating the brain. So with Alzheimer's patients who pretty much been left nonverbal, non-responsive music. They found out their favorite songs from when they were kids, mm. literally switched on the brain in a way that no other medicine could. So, so, so powerful in terms of the, I think the, the power uh, of music. And, and with my dad to the, you know, we would play classical music, um, you know, all the time. And I think it's so, it's so powerful. Um, on the, on the glucose side, I'm curious, are there devices 
I know there's now devices for HRV, for example, like Aura Ring and Whoop and a variety of these different devices. I have seen a couple of friends who are more on the like hardcore biohacker side, like Tim and Dave Asprey and these guys wearing these glucose monitors. But are there ways in which you can monitor your blood sugar for everyday people? Do they have to get one of these devices? Is there a, a simpler way to do it? How, how do you recommend people do that? Yeah. I mean, everyday people can do this. You don't, you don't have to be, you know, a millionaire to get these things done. They're not out of reach for a lot of people. Um, the cheapest way to do it would be not to use a continuous glucose monitor, but to go to CVS and get a glucometer. They're so cheap. The strips that you're actually testing are the most expensive thing. Some of them can be like a dollar per test still pretty affordable. And so you could do, um, basically you would eat and then you would prick your finger one hour and two hours after you eat to see if you spiked. You're going to be doing some graphing and some charting. So it's a lot more time intensive versus having a device that you look on your phone and you get a graph and it tells you exactly where you are at all times. So you're not going to get that continuous monitoring of it, but you can still get a lot of information just from a finger stick glucometer. And now we also have ketone measuring devices, which are finger stick as well. And usually if you get a, one that measures your ketones to tell you whether you're in ketosis or not, ketosis, you'll also be able to get strips that measure your blood sugar through the same device. So like um, the one we use is um, Keto Mojo is one that will measure both ketones and blood sugar. So those are very affordable and attainable for the general public. You mentioned, so ketosis. Um, so, you know, for those listening, I'm, I'm guessing most people know what ketosis is um, and, and the different types of fuel that we can burn. Um, but you did mention earlier with the APOE4 alleles that, for example, a ketogenic diet might not be um, optimal for that particular blood type. And I think a lot of people get confused. Obviously, that's why there's so many bestsellers with people having the next best uh, technique for your optimal health uh, through their diet plan. But, um, you know, and I don't know if there's necessarily a silver bullet answer to this question, but how does one, because, you know, for example, like two years ago, whatnot, you know, ketogenic diets were all the rage, not to say they aren't now, but you, you may have been APOE4 allele and done that diet and maybe that wasn't optimal. Just like, uh, you know, gut health is, was huge and like you take, you, you're eating all the probiotic foods, you know, you're having the krauts and the, you know, the kombuchas, but actually if you're imbalanced, you may be actually, maybe may actually growing the, you know, that imbalance even further. So how does one think about figuring out, is the elimination diet the best way to go about figuring out what, what diet is best for you? Uh, because, you know, if you talk to various people or you listen to various podcasts, people will swear by one particular school of thought, right? Like they mm -hmm. are about them, you know, it's carnivore diet, it's ketosis, it's whatever, or it's vegan, it's, you know, this and that. And I, my personal view is that, you know, different, I've been vegetarian, I've been a meat eater, like I, and I feel like a lot of that's been guided by my physicians. But what do you, how do people go about figuring out really what is the best way to eat for their particular type? Yeah. Yeah. And so my background's in nutrition. So I'm like a huge nutrition junkie. That's how I got into all of this originally. Um, but I think, I think that there's a couple important factors. Number one is you are the CEO of your own body. Nobody is ever going to know your body better than you. No doctor, no health coach, no podcast guru, not me, not nobody. Um, so really listening to your body, I think, is a big theme that people will put to the wayside in exchange for dogmas that are out there that look really sexy and cool. Like, all you have to do is eat bacon for the rest of your life. Like, how fun could that be? Um, that feeds into if it's a dogma, it's likely not the full truth. Like there's going to be exceptions to that. But when people are super dogmatic about one certain thing, like this is the answer to nutrition, nutritional sciences change more than any science out there. Like we're continually learning. And, and so I think if you think that you have that golden ticket for nutrition, I would just be wary of those people. I always think moderation, like kind of going somewhere in between listening to your own body looking at your blood work and how it responds to that diet. So the keto diet can help some people, right? They can have lowering of LDL numbers. They can have improvements in insulin markers. They can have improvements in, you know, how they actually feel. You put somebody else on the ketogenic diet, 
Their thyroid markers might suffer, meaning they might actually have hypothyroidism if it's a long period of time because of the stress on it. They might have changes in their cardiovascular disease risk markers. LDLP might increase. So everybody's going to respond differently. We had a patient, you know, the other week where she had high LDL particle number and she really liked the ketogenic diet. So we changed some things, but we kept her pretty like low carb keto. Her markers didn't change. So we have to respond and say, okay, let's increase the carbs. Let's take out the saturated fats a little bit. Let's put you on more of a moderate protein, moderate fat, moderate carbohydrate diet and see how you do. And we're going to retest her in three, six months. And then we'll have that as the answer versus like, what we think we should do. Like just look at the numbers and look at how you feel and really go with your intuition. But there's objective data that you can reference. So you don't have to just go by thinking, like get this checked and have, have the proof. And I think it's really empowering to have that proof um, and, and just listen to yourself. Yeah. I love that. So um, with health span, this notion of longevity and, and living well into, you know, at, at any age, there's a couple different things I wanted to ask you about. So one is hormones, right? So for example, you know, both men and women obviously have testosterone and estrogen. Um, but I know, you know, for example, as men age, oftentimes uh, their testosterone decreases mm -hmm. the most uh, potent in the morning. But what's your sense around, and we don't just have to talk about uh, estrogen and, and testosterone, but how, how do, do you think about hormones and as we think about aging well and the reduction of certain hormones, um, how does one, is there, is there a counterbalance to that? Mm -hmm. You know, I hear about certain people, I won't mention any names, uh, basically uh, kind of cheating the system and doing, uh, you know, sort of taking in exogenous testosterone or, or even human growth hormone, which mm -hmm. uh, I, I imagine probably isn't great for you, although I don't know, I've never done it. Um, but how do you think about that in terms of staying optimal as we age? Yeah. And so first there's, there's longevity, right? Like how long we live, but what's more important to me is your health span. So um, your quality of life, ideally your lifespan curve goes like this. It's like, you feel great. You feel great. You feel great. You die. Like that is the optimal lifespan, health span to achieve. And so with that, we're really looking at optimization and reducing the risk for chronic disease. So things that kill you will deteriorate your health span. If you have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, like the big killers, the big things that are the top risks for death in the United States, those are the ones that you want to minimize your risk for, which is why we're talking about cardio labs, metabolic labs, why we're talking about dementia. Um, the other big one that we didn't talk about is incidental falls and injuries. So a fall is one of the leading causes of death because it puts you in the hospital and then you go down the pathway um, that way. So that's where working out and why I'm asking you how many push-ups, pull-ups, and how fast you can run a mile, because it's going to reduce your risk for an incidental injury or a fall, which can be a cause of death. And so looking at those things, I think, is really, really important. Um, when we talk about hormones and the anti-aging side of thing, I don't think it's cheating the system. And this is where we have to differentiate between what's natural and what's beneficial. Exogenous testosterone is not natural, right? Like, it's just not. However, we're using science to benefit us and increase our health span, how well we feel while we're here. And so I don't know if testosterone is going to increase your lifespan. However, if you want your quality of life to be of that of a 20-year-old, then you want your testosterone to be above 600. You want to have a libido. If you don't have a libido, that part of you is kind of dying. So you want to make sure that you have a libido. Testosterone also motivates you. It's an antidepressant almost. It actually makes you feel like you want to get up and go. So there's so many benefits of testosterone um, that we don't think about. We often think about it as like a rage hormone, where in reality, testosterone is beneficial for cardiovascular disease. It's beneficial in a large percentage of our health that's not related to, um, to even sex drive. So making sure you have good testosterone levels. Most men don't know what their testosterone is. Women should know as well, but 
you need to know what your number is. If you're a 200 versus you're a 900, you're gonna feel different. And, and so really digging into that. And then if your testosterone is low, well, is that because your insulin is high? Is there another cause? If you just put in testosterone without addressing the root cause, you're not gonna get the same benefits. People should be lifting heavy weights too. If you're not lifting weights and you have low testosterone, it's the first place to start. You need to lift heavy things that tells your body oh, we couldn't lift this weight this time. So what does your body do? An adaptive mechanism, it puts out testosterone to go repair the muscles that you just injured to increase your lean body mass. So the next time you go to do that set or that rep of that weight, you can now lift it. So it's a very protective mechanism. But if you don't need to increase testosterone because you're not lifting anything, you're just sitting on the couch, well, that could be why your testosterone is so low. So it's, you can see how it's just this huge 360 approach, right? Everything is connected to everything and you want to make sure you got good levels. And with hormone testing, we usually are doing advanced hormone testing, especially on women. We do a dried urine hormone test called the Dutch because it lets us kind of get more details about your estrogen metabolism, which we know that there's four, 16, and two hydroxyestrone and four and 16 are potentially more estrogenic and more problematic if they're out of range. So we want to make sure that you're in a healthy range and there's ways to push your body down a healthy estrogen metabolism pathway to that two hydroxyestrone versus the four or the 16. So again, it just goes on prevention because cancer, leading cause of death, um, and a lot of them are estrogen-related cancers, ovarian, prostates, and breast cancer, all going to be estrogen-related cancers. Wow. I, I, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on hormones. I'd love oh. it. Uh, totally. <laughs> um, okay. So in the context of, there's just a few things I'd love to uh, cross over on for this show, because um, I know we're, we're kind of hitting on an hour mark. But I'd, I still want to talk to you a bit about a couple things. One is, um, so we've talked a lot about sort of the body. Um, you talked a little bit there and touched a little bit around exercise, well, specifically around lifting weights. But as one optimizes, we've talked a little bit about nutrition. Obviously, we know for BDNF, a lot of different exercise being so critical to just overall well-being. Um, we are now besieged by, and I did a huge episode with Dr. G on environmental toxins, you know, heavy metals, molds, uh, things that I've tested for with him uh, that have profoundly affected me that I'm now uh, sort of taking care of and being mindful of. But I think anyone who's living today, I mean, I forget the statistic, but like even in your embryonic fluid, like before we're born, we're now, you know, besieged by more environmental toxins than ever before. We don't even really know mm -hmm. what the effects are going to be. Mm -hmm. So how does one make themselves resilient in a brave new world of the 21st century? Mm -hmm. And I think it's apt now, especially given, I feel like many diseases, if not most, are exacerbated by stress and mm -hmm. excessive stress. And I feel like right now we are amidst a pandemic. So there's, there's these external sources, uh, some of which are very real and biological, like molds or chemical. Uh, but then there's also this just prevailing stress that seems to be in the air, if you will, as a result of all of the uncertainty that, that people are living with. So as you think about this, these, these stressors, how can one prepare themselves for resilience from a sort of a functional medicine point of view? Yeah, I think it starts with your mindset. And I don't like to go through any podcast without talking about mindset because I think it's something that's so important. But I think it starts with your mindset. Um, I think if you're in a positive growth mindset where you really believe that your body can handle anything that comes that it comes across, I think that's the most important thing in health almost. I think it's above anything. Um, and so really starting with that mindset piece and then fortifying your mindset and rewiring your brain actively. So the human brain is designed to be scanning. The human brain is designed to be thinking. It's designing to make sure that there's no tigers or lions that are chasing us. We're supposed to be you know, looking at the environment for threats and triggers. So it's really designed for that. And meditation is the active process of rewiring your brain for being mindful and present in the moment and not scanning the whole environment all the time. And so um, that's something that we need to actively work on because if we can really be present and mindful, then we're going to tell our brain, hey, we're safe, we're okay. You know, there's a pandemic going on, but right now, 
we are okay. We've got shelter, we have food, we have loved ones, we have a bed to sleep in. And so I think that that's, that's the first step. The other steps are just the foundations of health. So yeah, we can make this super sexy and keep talking about you know, fun functional MRIs and getting you hooked up to an HRV monitor like the WHOOP or the Aura. And those are all great. But if you don't have your sleep dialed in, if you're not eating six to nine cups of vegetables per day, if your plate is not three quarters vegetables all the time, if you're not eating a normal amount of food, because under eating is just as detrimental as overeating too, and if you are not exercising and if you don't have a good lean body mass and a low body fat percentage or an appropriate body fat percentage, none of the biohacking gadgets matter, right? You need to get those foundations set in stone. You need to make sure that you have sunshine coming in to your eyes every day. You need these basic things. And so that's where you want to start. And once you've got all that, then you want to go do your lab work. And then you want to go hook yourself up to an HRV monitor or continuous glucose monitor or get a brain scan or, you know, you can keep adding on the things, but make sure that your foundation is super, super strong. And it starts with mindset. It starts with meditation. It starts with all the things that are pretty much free. Um, so that's the benefit as well. I love that bringing it back home. I, I remember asking Ben Greenfield, we, we, went, we, went, we went deep into the, into the biohacking world. Then I was like, yeah, but if you were to distill that down to one thing, what would it be? And it's ostensibly exactly what you just said, which is get yeah. in nature, you know, get that sunshine, get that sleep. Um, so for you, Dr. Mary, what would be, this is a question I often like to, to ask, which is if there were sort of three resources, they can be three books, it could be a, a book in a, you know, two books in a film it could be just practices, you know, mm -hmm. like eat your vegetables is definitely one I'm taking away. Mm -hmm. uh, simple, but, uh, but I'm going to diversify my, my intake. Um, three things that you think anyone listening could apply to their life today that would have an exponential effect. Mm -hmm. exponential okay. effect. Give me three. Yeah. And I'm not going to repeat anything. So there's probably things in there that I would say, but just to shake things up a little, I'll do new ones. Yeah. Um, so number one is going to be the book. You are the placebo by Joe Dispenza. Any of his books are actually in that category, but just to name one, you are the placebo by Joe Dispenza. The reason behind that one is that it gets into that mindset piece of things. And I see this more than almost anything as being an issue to people's health and an obstacle for healing. Um, if you don't believe that your body can heal, it cannot heal. So it's almost something I'm starting to ask people, like, do you think you can get better? If your answer is no, go do this, read this book, come back to me when you're ready, because it's just going to be a waste of time and money. Um, so that's my number one. My number two is going to be the Inner Balance Device by HeartMath. And this is a cool one. This is measuring not only your heart rate variability, but your heart coherence, which is the communication between your heart and your brain. They're both electrical fields, so you can measure that. And I like this device because it's so affordable. It's like a hundred and something bucks. It's not like $600, $1,200. Um, and you just buy it once and you have the subscription of the app for life. And what you do is you do a breathing exercise with it where it gates and kind of tells you how to breathe based on um, where your HRV is. And then also has you focus on gratitude and positive thoughts. And you'll see your heart coherence shift from an incoherent state, which is very, you know, jagged and up and down to a very coherent state, which would look like a wave or like a sine wave curve. Um, so that in inner balance device is one of them. And then I got one more. Mm. Um, there are so many good ones out there. Um, I'm going to say it because I'm standing on it right now. And so <laughs> I think you got to stand up. So sitting is the new smoking. So get yourself a standing desk. You can make one too. It doesn't, it can be like boxes, which I've had throughout most of my life is just a bunch of cardboard boxes on top of each other. Um, but either standing or a treadmill desk, because we're all working from home right now. And what I see people doing is they're actually overworking and they're not taking breaks and then they're not moving their bodies. So we want to make sure that we're getting 10 to 12,000 steps per day. Our ancestors, bringing it back to ancestral medicine, we're walking about six 
to 20 miles per day. So that's the range. Obviously 20 is a lot, but you should be able to get about five miles in per day or 10 to 12,000 steps, which is around the same there. And the best way to do it is if you have a treadmill desk at home, you can log between two and 8,000 steps just while you're working. Um, and so I think that's a great one as well. I love that. Yeah. I might have to up my game. I do not yet have a treadmill desk. Yeah. And if, I mean, treadmills, like, okay, not everybody can do that, but almost everybody can make a standing desk at home. Like that's very attainable. Yes. Okay. This has been super, super amazing. Uh, Dr. Mary, I love, love our conversations. We'll have, we'll follow this up for sure. Um, is there anything that you are, that you, this is a side one, but is there anything that you've experienced lately or listened to or heard hmm. that kind of, because I know you have a voracious appetite for research, for learning, for science, that kind of blew your mind, that you were like, wow, okay, I think this is the new frontier of functional medicine, or this is, this is something that, you know, because I feel like we kind of move through phases in terms of like, you know, when I launched Peak Mind in 2015, obviously meditation has been around for thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of years, but definitely had a moment, you know, gut health, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like two, three years ago, I had a moment. Mm -hmm. um, what do you feel like is next? Like, what's the frontier in terms of uh, our possibility that you're very excited by? Yeah, I think it's personalized nutrition. And we're already doing it, right? But I think there's some people that are doing it better than others. And I think it's personalized nutrition from a lab standpoint, like really figuring out what your body does best with. And so in my company, Modern, we're using continuous glucose monitors, blood work every six to 12 months. And, um, and then we're also using something that you're measuring, you're looking at the gut microbiome a little bit. So with that like comprehensive view, we're able to individualize your diet a lot better for you, your body and how you feel. So I think we're gonna see a lot of companies coming out with other ways to individualize and personalize your nutrition because I really do believe it's individual. I don't think everybody is meant to eat everything. 100% agree. And that's actually an area that I'm extraordinarily excited by. Um, okay, Dr. Mary, where can people find you? You mentioned the course earlier. Uh, give a shout out for this course because I, I, you and I have talked about it. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's going to be phenomenal and it just launched. Um, where can people find you online and where can they find this course? Yeah. And so you can find the course actually on my website. So just modernmed.com. It's M-O-D-R-N-M-E-D.com. Um, the gut health course is a 10 day course over four hours of content. We go through IBS, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, reflux. Um, we go through all the gut things, the gut microbiome, the gut brain connection, a lot of research. And so um, that's located on my website it's through one commune. So if you go to commune.com, you'll see the gut health course there as well. Um, and on my Instagram is where I post a lot of just informational things on anti-aging, hormones, gut health, a lot of infographics go there. And my tag is at dr.maryparty. Um, so those are two places to, to look for us. We do do virtual telehealth consults. So that's the majority of what we do is actually using Zoom, um, Zoom Medical to see people and figure out their health. Fantastic. Well, I can definitely recommend Dr. Mary, and I'm so grateful that you took the time to speak with us. And I'm looking forward to the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Mary. I know that I did. She sent me a correction. She said basically that if she said LPA should be less than 80, that's actually for APOB. IPA should be less than 30. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review. And feel free to, uh, to tag us at Michael Trainer and at Dr. Mary over on Instagram and let us know your thoughts, any questions you might have. I always get back to you guys. I'm so grateful for you listening, and I'm so grateful for you being part of this community. So thanks for taking the time, guys. Go out there and live your inspired